Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. I'm Cody. I'm in a post-Thanksgiving days. I don't know. We didn't. We didn't have basketball for a whole day. Do you remember the teams that are still in the NBA? It was actually a really strange experience because you know I was I was at my my wife's family's place and they were watching some football and stuff. In my head, I'm like, oh, I bet you there's an NBA game on. We could probably I could probably like sneak off to the corner and watch that. I was mistaken, Ben. I was I was yeah. very sorely mistaken about that. Yeah, it's 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 a tough one. On one hand, you have the day off and there's Thanksgiving food. On the other hand, no basketball and some of us have the real withdrawals. Uh, you know, we have to find a way to to offset that. So that's what we're doing today. We said we're gonna we're gonna get together and record us talking about basketball. And um, yeah, Cody, this is a fascinating season. We alluded to some possible parody that we might see in the NBA this year. And I think early on, we're seeing the signs of that. And especially with a lot of records being so similar. That's what jumps out to me, right? It's, and we'll talk about a few teams in a second, but it's this this idea of like, the Clippers are 11 and eight, and the Mavericks are nine and eight. And on one hand, those are very similar records. They both have eight losses. On another hand, uh, perusing the standings, you might go, oh, the Clippers are like in fourth and the Mavs are in ninth. And one of these teams is doing great and one of these teams is doing poorly. And I would agree that one of those teams looks good and the other team looks like they're really struggling and doing poorly. Only it's not what the standings look like. So you're saying, because, you know, I'm looking at the Western Conference, especially right now, and Seed's one through ten all have between six and eight losses. Seeds one through ten have between six and eight losses, but you don't you don't quite believe that. You don't think the standings are are telling the full story right now? No, I think the cool part of what's happening right now is we have enough of a sample size to start understanding and talking about teams and and figuring out who's good, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff, all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, because there's a little more parity, because we haven't played 40 games, we've played 20, you see the standings are not going to give you the proper signal necessarily. So you look at the standings and you say, the Clippers, 11 and 8, up near the top of the conference, I believe. The Mavs, are the, Ma- the Mavs aren't even in a playoff position. Are they're in a play-in game right now, like 9 and 8? I'm not sure, but they're far apart in the standings. And I actually think all the indicators suggest that the Mavs are playing really well, similar to where they were last season at the end of the year when they made their run to the conference finals. We've talked about Luka uh, last time. We've had the video on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel and how they're using him in the post. And and if you look at their margin of victory, you look at their... Um, sort of shooting luck, opponent shooting luck, things early in the season that can throw some games or whatever. You look at their strength of schedule, the fact that their offense looks pretty good, which you expect, and their defense looks pretty good, which is how they did it last season. They look to me like a strong playoff team. The Clippers, on the other hand, the Clippers have had the best opponent three-point shooting luck in the league. Their offense looks broken. They have health problems, and they've played a really easy schedule. 
So the board we look at for Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash thinking basketball has sort of an updated win pace that looks at these numbers. And even though the Clippers are 11 and eight and the Mavs are nine and eight, they're on opposite ends of the board. The Mavs are up near the top of the league and the Clippers are down near the bottom. Yeah, I'm looking at this right now and the Mavericks, according to your database, expected 52 win pace at the moment, whereas the Clippers are down to a 32 win pace. So Think even though the that. Clippers are higher in the seating, like it's a 20, a 20, a 20 win, pace, win gap. That's yeah. not like a plus, I mean, plus 0.1 difference or something like that. Like this right. is a substantial difference in the way that these two teams are performing. Right. So that's kind of the incredible part of this season with some of the parody is you have how many teams in the league right now sitting on, you know, seven, eight, nine losses, some of them with six, some of them with 10. And so the records look really similar. Another team that we didn't talk about a couple episodes ago, and we were talking about uh, teams that are looking more legit or less legit, the Chicago Bulls, the Bulls are eight and 10, but they've played well defensively. They've hung around on offense. Maybe they can get healthier. Uh, But again, you know, if you just look at the raw standings, you might think, Denver and Nikola Jokic up near the top of the Western Conference, they're doing their thing. And the Bulls are also doing their thing of late, which is disappointing and struggling. And it's like, actually, the Bulls, when you look at margin of victory, when you look at strength of schedule, when you look at these other factors, they've played pretty well through 18 games, all things considered. The Nuggets, and I think this jumps out on film, they've been bumpy. Um, You know, Jamal Murray's not close to being back to Jamal Murray. Michael Porter Jr. is still getting his feet and his movement patterns under him. And so credit to them for eking out wins. I think as long as Jokic is there, they're going to be able to eke out wins in close games. But they're not playing with the strength you'd expect after almost 20 games from a like solid playoff team. How much do you think that uh, having repeat opponents is contributing to this? Because that's something that we're seeing a lot more this season, I feel like more than past seasons, is uh, you play the same opponent like twice in, in three nights or three times in a week or something like that. Do you think that that's kind of messing with these standings a little bit more? I, I think that could be a small component of it because your schedule isn't quite as diverse and then it's a little different early in the season when you're working on stuff and you're getting up to speed and then you can see the same team a second time in a week or to your point like we talked about the Bucks and the Hawks I I mean I I think they've played a seven game series again at this point only a month into the season or so but that would only be a small component because otherwise you still play different teams every night you still have a relatively balanced home and away schedule at this point so it's like we know who's really good in the league right now, and we have an idea of who's, let's say, really bad or entering the NBA draft sweepstakes. But all these teams in the middle, the middle class is really hard to sort out. It's really swollen. And it's really interesting to me to look at teams in this group, in this band of quality, and say, who kind of jumps out as a team no one's talking about as being very good? I mean, we've done a lot of work on Cleveland. Cleveland just continues to look strong. They're 12 and 6 in raw wins and losses. We know teams like Phoenix and Boston are going to carry over from last year. We just mentioned the Mavs. We know the Bucks are a really good team. The Pelicans continue to look strong offensively and basically across the board. I think the Pelicans uh, have a nice squad right now and things are trending in the right direction for them. Who knows what's going on with a team like the Brooklyn Nets? But there's one other team, Cody. There's a team that 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 I I'm in love with them. They're the new Cavs. 
the new, that's really high praise, Ben. Oh my goodness, I, I well, didn't quite expect that. Well, they're not as good as the Cavs. Yeah, but they're the new Cavs, and that and that they're really fun, flowing, beautiful team to watch. And uh, for a lot of people, kind of out of nowhere, because you might not know that basketball is still played in this part of the world. Uh, it's a team that hasn't had they haven't had a lot of success in the last decade or two or three or four as a franchise, although they did have a brief glory year run. You know who I'm talking about, Cody? Sacramento Kings. Who I don't think has played a playoff series against any current NBA player, if I'm not mistaken. Well, they haven't made the playoffs in, what, 16 or 17 seasons? Yeah. Yeah. Since the Ron Artest days. It's a long... That's right. It's really weird to say. The Kings haven't made the playoffs since the Ron Artest days, and he was there for like a year or two or whatever it was. It feels like a cup of coffee. But yes... In all seriousness, not getting because we could, we could we could really get sidetracked on this podcast. I can feel it. The Kings are solid. They're they're good. No one's talking about them. When we look at our board, they're one of the best teams in the league in terms of looking at win pace based on these other factors. And there's a really easy place to go with them. The offense, the offense right now, just by raw numbers, is the second best offense in the league. I don't know if they can hold like a top two or top three offense because that that's going to juice your record quite a bit. But Cody, I've been I've been watching them. Um, I can't stop watching them. They're really really cool watch. Their offense is good. I think you know there's always the caveat of injuries because I hate making big proclamations and they're be com- completely like sidelined by somebody getting injured. But if they like especially Fox and Sabonis stay healthy. I actually don't see why they wouldn't have a top three offense in the league because everything that I'm seeing, I think, you know, they're knocking down a bunch of threes and whatever else at a pretty high clip, but I don't see anything that's that they can't replicate throughout a series, a season. Like the way that they're playing right now, like it totally makes sense the way that they spread out the floor. And I'm like, wow, I think this offense is actually really sustainable. You know, they don't necessarily have like traditional big men. And I think they just sold all out and being like, hey, you know what? Let's just open up the floor. Let's use all of our shooters. Let's use our passing hub. Let's use De'Aaron Fox's blinding speed. And let's see what happens. And right now, Ben, uh, it's happening. And I'm, you know, I think at the end of the season, they might be a top three offense still. All right, let's let's sidebar. Let's thought experiment this for a second. How many teams in the league do you think, as of today, what, what day is today? November 25th? Yes, November 25th. How many teams do you think could end the season with a top three offense? Keeping in mind, for everyone listening at home, Boston has the best offense in the league right now after a month and change. They're seven points better than league average. Sacramento has the second best offense in the league. They're five points better than league average. Cleveland and Phoenix are right behind them at four points ahead of the league. And then you get to the Pelicans and the Utah Jazz at about... Uh, three and a half to four points as well. How many teams, when you glance at the standings, do you think have a legit shot at finishing top three? Man, Ben, I'm staring at Denver. I'm just staring at Denver's logo right now. And I'm like, are they, with uh, with a relative offensive rating that's plus 2.6, do they have enough juice to, to climb that back up? Is there going to be drop-off? Is Boston going to drop off a little bit when Rob Williams comes back? Like, is that going to affect their offense for a little bit of sacrifice for defense? Uh Cleveland, if they stay healthy, okay, I say Cleveland, I think for, he, they're like my for sure will be in the top three. 
Cleveland, I top three for sure. Yeah, Cleveland, lock wow. them. If Garland and Mitchell are healthy throughout the season, they're my top three lock for sure. Uh, Phoenix is doing this without Chris Paul and Cam Johnson. That's incredible. Um, I could see Phoenix being in there. They're probably my number two here. Uh, what, did, what did you eat yesterday? At the t- this is spectacularly hot take. Just right out of the gate, Cleveland lock them top. I say Cleveland's like a lock for like top seven. Top seven. So, yeah. What don't you? Yeah. This makes it sound like you're being super negative, but why don't you think they're going to oh, be higher than that? Oh, no, I'm not super negative at all. I think they could be top three. You said a lock for top yeah, three. Yeah, lock. Yeah. So I would have Cleveland, Phoenix, the Pelicans. I, I don't think Utah can finish with a top three offense. Nope, I don't think so. I think, I think they'll regress a little bit. Who knows what's going to happen with the rest of their season, how many games they're going to try to win. Um, they're, they're, they're a fun, you know, solid little team, as we've mentioned before. Denver's a team with potential... I don't think Indiana could get top three. I like what they're doing. We mentioned that before. I'm not sure they could get top three. Dallas? No. Dallas feels like a team that could get close. I might put them as a candidate. And then I think the only other team for me is Golden State, who's currently like 12th or something. I don't necessarily see Golden State making that kind of a run. And for... For the Mavericks, like when they get Kleba back in the lineup and playing a little bit more, I think that's going to kind of bend them towards defense a little bit more. So, yeah, I think the end of the season is probably going to be like Cleveland, Phoenix, and maybe even Sacramento. No offense to Boston, but I really think that their offense is going to switch a little bit defensively for when Rob Will comes wait, back. W- wait a second. Wait a second. This is really interesting. Okay. You you don't think Golden State right now is plus one yep. after 19 games. Who knows what's going on with Jordan Poole? Clay Thompson has been... Uh, he's been shaky. Let's put it that way. Yes. I don't want to get up here after a nice holiday meal and say bad things about Clay Thompson, but he has he has not been at the best form to start the year. You don't think this team can, you know, jump most of these teams, or if they let's put it this way: if Golden State actually continues to win games and turn things around as they have started to a little bit here. They're up to 9 and 10 in the win-loss column. You don't think that can be pushed by a good offense the way Steph Curry is playing? I mean, when you look at their... This this might go into another conversation a little bit later, but when you look at their starters and when they're playing, they're posting like a 135 offensive rating in like, I don't know, what is it, like 200-some minutes? So maybe, but are the Warriors going to like lean into we're going to be playing our best guys throughout the regular season? I don't necessarily think that. And, you know, not to be a downer, but uh, is Curry going to play the entire season? Like, are we sure he's not going to play like 65 games or something like that? And those 20 games, you know, we've seen a history of the Warriors just tanking offensively. So I think too many things need to go their way to get up into the top three offenses. Interesting. Interesting. So does this mean, in a way, you're saying the war- like for you to have the Warriors in the top four in the West, they would need to really turn it around defensively then? Yeah, I think so. But you, do you think that's going to happen? This this sounds like you're selling the Warriors. No, I, for the regular season. We're talking regular season right now. I think they're a team that's uh, they seem to be playing like they're in a bit of a, you know, we're taking it slow right now. We can maybe turn it on and we get to the playoffs. And I still believe in them when they get to that point. But over an 82-game season, I don't. I don't necessarily think that. Okay, okay. So I, I would I would have Golden State. I think it's possible for them to get top three. Maybe Dallas, Denver, the Pelicans, Phoenix, Cleveland, Sacramento, Boston. So I think Sacramento is probably going to finish with one of the better offenses in the league. And, and, and that's where we were going before we had that fun little sidebar. 
uh, sp- spicy little sidebar already. <laughs> Here's the thing. This offense of the Kings is legitimately good. They they have talent. The talent fits together, and they're playing a great style. Credit to Mike Brown and that coaching staff there. Uh, Mike Brown, of course, uh, at Golden State, longtime assistant there and old head coach in the league. Multiple stops for many years, including LeBron James back in Cleveland when they went to the finals in 2007. But uh, Kevin Herter, um, I mean, how much time do we have to talk about Kevin Herter? Red, Red Velvet. How good has this guy been? I mean, he's unbelievable. I haven't looked at the numbers, but for a period of time, what? He was shooting over 50% from three and like a not particularly easy attempts all the time either like he gets wide open looks because of the nature of their offense but uh you know his his shooting clip was literally on a historical run there so you're saying you have a problem with Kevin Herter taking seven and a half threes a game and shooting 49.6 percent oh he's That's, below 50 what a scrub he, he, what he a dipped scrub. below 50 yeah it's unbelievable yeah. The, the, the interesting thing is he takes 11 threes per 100 which is still not in the mega you know gunning Steph Curry just these other guys that let it fly I think he should probably find a way to shoot a few more threes if possible it reminds me a little bit of Kyle Kuzma Kyle Kuzma Kyle Korver wow I'm getting my KK's mixed up here what this is this is uh this is a post meal malaise I meant okay Kyle Korver with the Hawks um I'm just it's like I'm just going to be Marv Albert by next year just like saying random <laughs> names when I've mentioned basketball players. Uh, Not Marv 2000 <laughs> We've lost Cody. 2015 Hawks where Kyle Korver was an intricate part of that offense with his movement and off-ball activity and coming off screens and all that. But he's a guy that averages at the end of the day like what 15 points a game or something that doesn't look that impressive. Movement shooters and shooters of this level have shown over and over and over again in plus minus studies that they are extremely valuable to offenses in a way that exceeds their points per game and their assist numbers. And that's the thing about Herter. Herter's got a, a few passing chops too. So he's he's running around and they're kind of they're they're incorporating these sets that allow him to move, come off screens in the corner, um, you know, fly off two picks and and play a little two man game with uh, with Sabonis then at the top of the key or something like that, hand off into a three, and so he fifty percent the way he's shooting, the way he's passing, the way he's moving, uh, he's he's like been legitimately awesome on offense to watch for this team. See, I agree with you, but I think. If we're going to have any conversation about the Kings, I think everything has to start with Sabonis in the way that they run their offense. And I think Herder is able to get his openings and is able to use his, his off-ball movement because of the way that they're using Sabonis. Because when you look at some of the lineups, like let's say, uh, you know, they have uh, Fox, Barnes, Herder, Sabonis, Davis out there, Murray, whatever else. Sabonis is the guy that's not going to be able to shoot, but... When you bring him up to the top and you run like a delay set where you have him being the, the dribble handoff hub while everyone else kind of flows around, what's really tricky about the way that they run their offense is, you know, there's a common set that they run where, you know, you have Herder over in the corner, you have Sabonis up top doing a, a dribble handoff. He does his little handoff action, and then Herder comes over from the corner and sets a back screen for Sabonis, who like dives into the paint. And a lot of teams kind of have this natural inclination 
to switch everything. You know, you see it with uh, the Grizzlies did a couple times. The Warriors was switching everything against it. But you can't do that against Sabonis because he's such a physical, strong post-up guy, right? He's not necessarily like the best post-scorer in the league, but he's the kind of guy that if he gets a small on him, he is absolutely going to bang them into the basket, throw it down, put up a nice little hook. So then all of a sudden you have to kind of scramble around to get maybe a double team or try and scram switch it. And in that instant, right? I don't think Sabonis is like the greatest passer ever, but he has like really nice post feel. And from that, it just begins this cascading effect of like finding the open guy immediately. They know how to cut so well. They know how to kind of uh, set up in a different space. And in that, there's like this wild chaos. And that's where Kevin Herter and everyone else in the offense, especially De'Aaron Fox finding finding openings for driving. I think that's where they really thrive. And it all begins with Sabonis being able to have like that DHO ability and just like strong post mobility against smaller guys. Yeah, the Sabonis hub of the offense is definitely one huge thing that's going on here where they're using him as a big man that can combine handoff action in the middle of the floor up at the top of the key. That's the delay set Cody was alluding to there where usually you're like five out and you get it to the big man at the top and then he can turn, you can do handoff stuff, you can hit little backdoor quick cutters, they'll throw in split cuts with him at the elbow and so... Basically, his decision-making and his ability to pass in those spots opens up this style of offense and, and this sort of playbook that runs around him. When he's off the floor, they almost have a slightly different looking offense because they can't run stuff through him. They can't punish switches and get him sealing smaller defenders under the basket. So it's a little bit different. Um, you might get more De'Aaron Fox, but you might also see some more movement stuff that doesn't necessarily involve running everything through a big man in the middle of the floor. But I just think the totality of the way Fox is playing, both pick and roll, early offense, speed attack, what you mentioned about Sabonis and Herter's movement. If you look at the numbers, uh, they're the best when Herter's on the floor. 123.4 offensive rating. Sabonis is just under 123. Fox is back at 122. So that that's the meat of their team successfully on offense. Those are their three best offensive players by my eye and by a pretty clear, um, by a pretty clear jump statistically. They look like the three best offensive players for the Kings. And to put this in perspective, when Kevin Herter's out there with that 123 offensive rating, Cody, that's the sixth highest on-court offensive rating for any player in the league, regardless of um, you know whether they're like playing 17 minutes a game for the Celtics. Sam Hauser actually has the highest in that stat because he comes off the bench. But Herter is playing, you know, he's playing big minutes. He's playing 32 minutes a game. And the offense is eight, sorry, the overall team is 18 points better per 100 when he's on the court versus off the court. And I just, I just can't help people, you know, I just can't help think that people are, are not, uh, realizing what's happening with red velvet right now he's just he's, he's just playing fantastic i do think that people fall in love with like the the shooting numbers like you see you see the seven three-pointers per game the 50 percent three-point shooting and you're like oh seven, seven attempts seven attempts what did i say yeah you said seven per game and and my 
And the only reason I cut you off is because I think he should be making seven three-pointers per game. I think he could do this. Yeah, I I absolutely think he can too. But I think people just kind of say like, oh, he's like, like you said, like the Kyle Korver movement shooter type. But unlike Kyle Korver, like you said, he's got really good off-the-bounce chops. He can move the ball a little bit. He can drive with a little bit more moxie. And when you combine those skills, which is the bunch of the skills that the, that the Kings have overall, like that's what makes him so deadly. Yeah, it's it's just beautiful. And... Um, they're starting Harrison Barnes. So you get Fox, Herter, Sabonis. You get the interactions we've talked about. They're starting Harrison Barnes, which is kind of, I mean, he's like a modern current big forward to play the four these days, but it's also in this theme of being a little bit more offense than defense. I mean, Barnes gives them some defensive sturdiness, but he's not a defensive specialist. He's not a rim protector. He's not a kind of another traditional big man. And so Sabonis is not a great, defender either Sabonis is not particularly vertical or tall and then he's got all this juice offensively that we talked about so it is an offensively slanted lineup but because of everything that you mentioned with Sabonis because of Fox's straight line speed the other thing that they do is they play with great pace it's just fantastic they will get down the court off of a miss in like I mean sorry off of a make excuse me They'll get down. They'll get down into their set in in like three seconds. Off of make you look at the shot clock. It's at twenty one. They're already coming at you. Some of this is Fox's speed, but it's also coaching and purpose. And just going back to uh, the podcast I did with Mike D'Antoni talking about how one of the critical components of pace and space was the pace part to realize that you're putting a time pressure under defenses to organize and set up quickly. And the Kings are really good at coming at that stuff early uh, and attacking sort of those small advantages as teams recoup. And the other guy we have to shout out offensively here because they'll they'll start Keegan Murray, they'll start Terrence Davis, they'll throw other guys in there. But Malik Monk off the bench has been the fourth guy. And, and I said earlier there's three clear statistical stars. I misspoke, Cody. You should have corrected me and sent me right into podcasting jail because Malik Monk offensively, 21 points per 75, 37% three, way more aggressive to my eye, going to the basket, quick decision-making. He's physically stronger and sturdier. If you haven't seen him play in a couple of years, he's been the fourth real kind of guy that jumps out to me on film. It's like, oh, this is another offensive piece that fits with Herder, fits with Sabonis, fits with having a spread pick and roll speedy point guard like De'Aaron Fox. Well, I think the magic of having a DHO hub like Sabonis is it helps guys like Monk who, you know, we've seen the last couple of years. He shows flashes, right? He's a great shooter. Uh, He can get some good straight line speed, but you don't necessarily want to give him the ball and be like, go run 20 pick and rolls keep our offense afloat. He's not that kind of guy, but you have if you have someone that can get him some momentum first, right? If you have someone like Sabonis that can get him the ball while he's moving in a certain direction, I think that's where he starts thriving, right? Whereas like De'Aaron Fox, when when Sabonis is off the court without Fox, right? I mean, sorry, when Sabonis is on the is off the court and Fox is playing, right? They still have like a 118 offensive rating. Still a very strong offensive rating. That's because Fox is a kind of guy that you can give the ball and be like, all right, your first step speed, your handling ability is good enough where you can kind of buoy the offense without a DHO hub. But Monk is the kind of guy, and I would lo- I don't have those numbers in front of me, but I would venture a guess that the offenses are much better when he's out there with Sabonis than without, because that's the kind of guy that's going to be able to, to juice and kind of supercharge his own abilities. 
You're saying Fox and Sabonis no, paired. I'm saying Monk and Sabonis. Monk and Sabonis. Yeah, yeah. Monk and Sabonis. Well, we we can get the uh, the stats department on that in a sec. But just one thing that's jumped out to me about Fox, which which kind of connects to Sabonis, is his his mid range is just completely gone up to a totally different stratosphere this season. And you don't expect shooting jumps like that to be so stark. So there's probably some regression coming, but he's taking almost 10 mid-range jumpers every 75 possessions, which roughly translates to a full game. And he's making 54% from the mid-range this season, Cody. Uh, For Fox, that's along with the the three-point shooting jump, he's at about 38% from downtown right now, that's one of the more prolific mid-range shooting displays in the league. To compare to some players, that's Jalen Brunson's, it's basically his literal numbers right now. Same number of attempts, 54%. Um, Kevin Durant, 12 attempts instead of Fox's 9.5, 54%. DeMar DeRozan, 13 attempts, 50%. Joel Embiid, 11 attempts, 11 attempts, 51%. So he's really incorporated this third level to his game effectively that goes so well with little Sabonis handoff actions or the kind of side-to-side things. That's another thing the Kings do really nicely, right? They'll change sides of the court deliberately to set up an attack to try to move the defense one way just a little bit, swing it back the other way, and then attack the, a closeout or attack something that doesn't look like a huge advantage because the defense had shifted just a step or two because they were worried about like a De'Aaron Fox pick and roll or something. It, it's, it's really a lot of lovely stuff. That's uh, I'm glad you brought up the both sides thing, Ben. This is this is just perfect. I don't remember who they were playing against these last couple of days. I want to say it's the Grizzlies. It might have been the Warriors, but I thought it was the Grizzlies. I think it was a lineup where Metu was in, right? And they don't always go to having him being a DHO guy like Sabonis, but in this particular play, he was at the top holding the ball, ready for some DHO stuff. You have Fox in one corner, and it looks like he's going to come off a pin down before getting the handoff, right? But he rejects it. Okay, he rejects that, sprints baseline to go to the other side. So then Metu is like, all right, I'll do a handoff with somebody else. Well, now that you have the defense shifting, Fox comes off a double stagger on the opposite side, catches the the pretty basic pass from Metu, and all of a sudden, like with Fox's blinding speed, he's getting downhill for a layup. And so when you have just this one player that's open to being like, oh, I'm not going to get it right now. I'm actually going to sprint over here so I can throw the defense off a little bit more. That's what opens it all up. And I think Fox, you know, you can kind of see it in his load numbers. Like we were talking about Trey and Luca being in the like plus, you know, 60 something loads. De'Aaron Fox's offensive load is like, what, 48? at the moment like he's not a super high offensive load guy and he's really buying into being more of an off-ball threat and you can see that with his his catch and shoot three numbers you can see it on the film when you see him you know changing sides and moving around a lot more well that's that's a component I love this year that they've added I'm so happy you mentioned that because for a player like Fox in the past you know the question is well he's a he's a road runner he's a speedster but if you can't shoot that well what's the off-ball contribution how do you blend with other talent and that play you highlighted is just a perfect example where he can get off the ball and then use his speed off the ball as part of the offense because the offense isn't stagnant the offense isn't just a bunch of spread pick and roll so you know he can he can circle around in that instance and then catching it in the handoff action he already has used his speed to gain a little bit of an edge over a defender 
burst downhill. You add that with the transition. And when you combine that with what he's doing in the mid-range and then his speed in transition, I mean, he's not someone who puts relentless pressure on the rim, despite how quick he is. He's not someone like John Morant, right? But when he gets there, he's very effective. And I feel like outside of Sabonis, that's the whole Kings team. Like they don't have a lot of guys that can create tremendous rim pressure, but Fox is shooting 83% at the rim. Sabonis is shooting 78% at the rim. Harrison Barnes is shooting 78% at the rim. You create space, use the shooting and the movement and you play with pace and you get, you know, higher percentage shots for these guys to finish. A guard shooting 80% from the rim is 83%. Yeah. It's absurd, but it, it makes sense because what, what really works in this goes back to using Sabonis to kind of take away the fact that he's not a traditional floor spacer is, you know, even though he's teams aren't afraid of him shooting threes, you still have to defend him. Like the big still has to be up there because if Herder comes off a handoff, all of a sudden he's wide open, he's going to bury it. So the big has to be up there to defend it. And if all of a sudden, like last second, you reverse it to Fox, there's no big in the paint for him to to defend down there. So like that interaction between these three guys, especially that we've been talking about, just opens up the lane so that Fox doesn't necessarily have to be like Ja, who's just like, well, there's three bigs in there. I might as well go over or through all of them. Fox has a li- little bit more of a clear lane that he's able to beat everyone to because he's, I don't know, one of the quickest, maybe the quickest first step in the league at the moment. All right, if Cody, just to put this in perspective, because uh, after I said it out loud, I realized, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, if you look at players who have taken only just a couple rim attempts per game in the entire league, Fox is 83% is third in the entire league. Terrence Mann from the Clippers, DeAndre Ayton is at 83%, and then Darren Fox. That's it. And usually, it's you said, it's a bunch of big men. Bull Bull, DeAndre Jordan, Evan Mobley, these are the other kind of names that are up at the top of the list. Sabonis himself is in the top 20 at 78%. Um, So, yeah, I believe in this offense. I think this is a really good offense. I think even with regression, you know, as long as there aren't major injuries, as the season goes on, I think there's still going to be a really successful offense. It's a fascinating story thinking about, um, you know, Mike, Mike Brown's background and some of the other coaches in there as well. In addition to Brown, they brought in Jay Triano as sort of an offensive czar from um, Charlotte. So I guess if anything with the Kings, and this might segue us into a, another conversation because I know you've had very strong thoughts on this lately. It's more the defensive side of the ball. How much can they hold up defensively if they get in a playoff series? You know, what does it actually mean? And when we talk about a guard like Fox who has certain physical tools on ball as a defender that some of these other players don't, where does Fox fall in this crazy kind of like era we're in where apparently you get in the playoffs and guards can like cost you like five points a game from their defense. Just something, just something crazy. It's like, if you have a weak guard on defense, you know, the Celtics felt this a couple years ago, first with Isaiah Thomas and then they came back with another small guard in Kemba Walker. And, you know, back when Kemba was younger and healthier, he had a really good year, his first year with the Celtics. And then you get to the playoffs and they're like, we would like you and pick and roll every time. Um, you know, how do these how do these offensive only teams with guards like this, how do they hold up? This man, this this is huge, Ben. This this conversation right here is fascinating because the spectrum of defensive talent 
among guards in the league right now. You know, you've watched your fair share of historical ball. Does it feel like it's the widest spectrum that we've basically ever seen between the worst defensive guards to the best? Because like you have some, you have some guys like like Trey Young, just an utter disaster on defense. John Morant, Ben. John Morant is is pretty lost. Like you watch the Grizzlies and Tyus Jones subs in. All of a sudden, they're like, man, when did they get Dennis Johnson like on this team? Like this is this is incredible. <laughs> and I, I don't think Fox is there. Right. I think Fox is, you know, I think he can get locked in once in a while and do some good defensive things. I don't think he's necessarily going to help your defense, but I wouldn't put him in that area. But then you have guys like Stephen Curry, who's like, you know, he fits in well with good defensive systems. He himself's a good defensive player. And then you have all the way up to like the Marcus Smarts of the world, who's just like, man, this guy's clearly adding something to your defense. That's a huge gap that I just don't remember seeing from watching all these historical games these last couple of years. It's funny you mentioned Tyus Jones. He is dead last in defensive Raptor to start the season, and he's in the third percentile in in defensive uh, RPM. So I'm going to jump in. So on at that. least I'm, at least a t- yeah, go ahead, Ben. Ben, I'm a stats guy. I love my numbers. That is wrong. <laughs> that yeah, that yeah, number yeah, is very yeah. incorrect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, um, at least statistically relative to Morant to start the year, at least Tyus isn't quite in the in the Dennis Johnson group. But, you know, looking at this board, Malik Monk is currently in the first percentile in the league in defensive Raptor, in defensive RPM, and in defensive Raptor uh, box score only component, which looks at tracking data and a ton of other things that are kind of interesting. And and, and as many of you who are familiar with these all-in-one numbers trying to take stuff like plus minus data, look at the changes when a player is on and off the court, incorporate tracking data and other information we have. We know these numbers aren't perfect. We know these numbers are noisy. We also know it's early in the season. But I mean, Malik Monk is first percentile in all these stats right now. Um, how How is that going to hold up in the playoffs? Fox has always been a question mark. He's 21st percentile and 43rd percentile. I actually think Herter is a pretty solid defender. Mm -hmm. I think he uses his size, uses his body, positions himself well. I think he's he's kind of sneakily sneakily solid on the ball and then communicates and seems pretty aware of what's going on off the ball. Uh, They they do start Keegan Murray sometimes, the rookie. He might be their sort of best perimeter defender piece but I think it's just a larger question and it's not even necessarily something we have to get hung up on the Kings with specifically but how how much does it hurt you if you kind of have a soft or or really weak defensive backcourt when you get to the playoffs and of course like doesn't Trey Young start this scale? Aren't isn't that where we're at? Where all the studies that keep coming out keep saying like, "Wow, as good as Trey Young is on offense, he's giving a lot of it back defensively." I, one of those studies is called "I Watch Atlanta Hawks Games," and that's probably the that's probably the most damning one that I've seen when it comes to his defense. <laughs> Just turning the game on. Yes, immediately being like, "Oh wow, oh wow, oh oh no, oh no!" Like that. I feel like that's what happens when I watch him there. That, you know what's funny is that the Hawks defense this year is actually slightly above average. They've they've been solid, um, and and you know, they're they're. Is that just the ability to protect him? Is that just a regular 
season thing. I don't know, but I, you know, I, I, I mocked them earlier in the year for sort of defensive shortcomings, but I think they've been, I think they've been able to hold up okay defensively. The weirder thing that happens is like when you get into the, when you, when you get in situations against good teams, and this is what happens in the playoffs, and they start really, really attacking that weakness, how much does it hurt? Here's the thing about the Hawks, though. Here's the thing. They're like one point better than league average on defense, right? That's a, that's a solid enough defense. But Clint Capella, right now leading the league in defensive RPM. You have DeJounte Murray, who's like in the top 10 in defensive RPM. DeAndre Hunter is a, a rangy, strong wing that can match up against other wings. John Collins, not necessarily a, a good defender, but I know in the past he's had some solid rim-protecting chops. And, you know, I always like it when teams have multiple guys they can rota- rotate down to uh, rim-protect. With those players, I would expect a better defensive rating, if we're being honest. Hmm, Okay. That, that I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Plus Okongwu, yeah. I think is pretty solid as another defensive piece. Yeah, so they have defensive they have defensive talent around him, uh, and of course you'd expect a better defensive rating because Trey is probably bleeding some of that value uh, back on that end. But I mean, you you said it earlier. Is this the point in time where we have the greatest disparity between? low-end small guard defensive value in the playoffs and strong small guard defensive value in the playoff. Like, like one end of the spectrum is Trey and the other end of the spectrum is Marcus Smart. And is that the difference between like a weak, a really weak rim protecting big man or just a, just a big man who's just like a major defensive problem in the postseason and then, like, the defensive player of the year. that It feels like the gap is, like, almost that big at this point. It does, and maybe this is probably a whole other other episode, but that's part of the secret, I think, when you see the Bucks playing, is, like, obviously they have Giannis and they have Brooke playing defense, but then Javon Carter and Drew Holiday, like, there's just... There's just so much defensive intensity on the perimeter, so much flying around, so much being able to switch around, just being just being a pest that I don't know. It, it's it's jarring when you turn and then you watch something like the Grizzlies or the Hawks. And you're like, wow, that's another blown covers that gave up a layup. Wow, that's another blown covers that gave up a wide open three. And, you know, I do think that the actual impact at the end of the day is bigger than it's ever been. So you, so you think, you, you know, on the historical spectrum, because the reason why the historical part is so interesting to me is there was a period of time where you'd say you'd hear people say like well yeah you can't win with Steve Nash because you can just go score 40 points a night on him this is when the game was more kind of individualistic more one-to-one pairings less switching less of these complex three-man actions or movement actions that we're seeing today and so the idea was like oh if you're in the playoffs and you have a good offensive point guard or even a good wing, you can just constantly go at Nash in isolation. I'm using Nash as a as a big example, but there are other players. Tony Parker, um, you know, is another player who people have questioned his defensive chops at that point in time. Basically, any small, soft point guard that didn't look like they were a strong defender, and you go like, well, um, anybody can hang 30 points a night on them. And what really matters is how does the team efficiency change when you went after those players? And sure, those players may have been negative defenders, but to the point of this conversation, it's hard to find evidence. And even when you go back and watch the films, it's hard to see 
how those players were completely, completely fracturing their team's defense. You know, whereas today you'll turn on a game and you'll just be like, it's it feels like three, four, five, six, seven possessions in a quarter. A major breakdown is happening because they're going after or exposing the defense of one of these really small guards. And then the rest of the time, the defense is scrambling to figure out how to protect the small guard on the possessions that actually go well, making sacrifices in places and things like that. I usually think it's one of the big reasons why last season, and you mentioned this, Cody, I believe at the time, the Celtics going to point Marcus Smart where they've gone and never looked back. Him going from the shooting guard and trying to help be part of the brigade that protects the weak point guard defensively to just becoming the point guard defensively. It's like, no, we don't have any weak defenders anymore. Now we're one of the best defenses you know, of the decade or something like that. I think that move was symbolic of this kind of jump, this divide you're talking about between the best defensive point guards um, or small guards, if you will, Drew Holiday, uh, Alex Caruso, these kinds of guys that you can put out there versus the sort of Trey Young, um, John Morant on one extreme end of the scale. But even like, even like Dame Lillard, it's always been an interesting thing to me to juxtapose the people who talk about Dame Lillard and Steph Curry as being similar player. Oh, Curry might just move a little bit more. It's kind of the similar thing. Like you watch them defensively, Curry is especially last year, but even even a couple of years ago was like on a different level up than Lillard. So how many levels are there to this thing? Is there like Trey and then Morant and then Lillard and then Curry and then another one and then like Smart and Holiday? If you can make five or six distinct jumps, that's a pretty huge value range for just that position defensively. And something that you said that I really, really want to emphasize here is that like when you go back to the mid 2000s, the 90s, the 80s, when you talk about a bad defender, that's like the one on one. I'm pulling up my shorts. I'm slapping the court. You're going to score on me. But at the end of the day, like there's still an NBA player with NBA player level athleticism. Like you still either like if you're going to get an efficient shot, you have to blow by them which is probably tougher than you might think in that situation, or you're going to have to take a contested shot. And even though maybe you're 6'3 with a short arm span, that's still a contested shot. That's not particularly an easy shot. But now, like you don't, like you go back to these previous generations, you don't see the level of movement that we're seeing on offense right now that we've been talking about with the Kings. And instead of being like, oh, they got the switch on Trey or something like that, it's like, nope, this person blew a coverage, which opened up either a wide open three or a layup. And all of a sudden the points per possession on that on that endeavor just becomes huge like it's not like oh that person's a bad defender so their defensive field goal percentage against is this it's like no nope, right. because of their missed rotation this team got a wide open three-point attempt from kevin herter right it's like it's like if you're the suns and you're in the playoffs and you're playing the lakers and it's and and you can get kobe to have Nash switched onto him at the elbow, what you're doing is you're upgrading a 46% elbow turnaround jumper to a 53% elbow turnaround jumper because you have less, uh, you know, um, contesting of the shot because the player's shorter, he's not as strong, things like that. That's very different than, and, and you laid it out perfectly like if you have a breakdown if you have a switching miscommunication if you completely botch what's hap- what's happening at the level of the screen 
take uh, Anthony Edwards and the Timberwolves. We're going to have a Timberwolves defense video come out. One of the points in that video is there's a game, and sometimes it happens too often for my liking. There's a game where he keeps getting rejected at the point of the screen. And the problem is there are certain coverages you can't have that happen in just ever. And one of those coverages is what Minnesota likes to do with Carl Anthony Towns coming up to the screen. So that is a breakdown defensively that is one of the most valuable sort of opportunities for the offense to have. And it's totally different in terms of value change than having a guy who's small guarding the post 20 years ago or a weak isolation defender versus strong isolation defender 20 feet from the basket with poor spacing 15, 20, 30 years ago. It's a totally different thing. In addition to that, I think what happens with some of these guys we're talking about, they, they're too small to usually scramble back and recover into the play in any meaningful way. So if you're bigger, you can get back, you can get the defensive rebound, you can block a shot, you can box another big guy out. You can, you can come back into the play after an, era, an error and still do something right? But when you're small, it's like you make this catastrophic breakdown at the team level. And then the best case scenario is you make like a great switch to cover up for someone else's mistake. And you use your speed and like get a steal as the defense is in rotation. And frankly, these guys usually don't do that. That's why they're such leaky defenders. Yeah. And you know, you can turn on a Hawks game and you can see Trey giving this kind of effort, right? You can see him trying to recover to a guy. Like, he does try. It's not like he's out there just, like, hands on his knees not trying. But when he, like, sprints out to somebody in the corner and leaps for a contest, I mean, he might as well not be there sometimes. So if you're out of position, even for, like, a second or a foot and a half out of position, you know, he's not going to be able to recover in time. Whereas, like, there's that famous play from from uh, the, the offseason, from the offseason where you had Giannis playing an international play, and he, like, started on the other side of the rim and recovered to block the three-point shot. Like, you physically can't see Trey Young doing that kind of thing. So, you know, before we get out of here, Ben, there's... I, I've been sitting on this statistical little factoid that I just... I, I need to share with you because... A statistical little factoid? Yes, I think we need Ooh, to end this it. today because... Uh, okay, I think I'm it's, ready. It's busting some... Uh, some notions that people are having about a player right now. Wait, we're done. What did we even talk about today on the I feel like we started by looking at some standings and then we were like, "Oh, the Kings are amazing and now we're now we're talking about the historical range of defensive point guard value." What what are we done with the show? Is that it? Yeah, I mean, we 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 started with Rush's album The Offense of Kings and then went to uh went to everything else. But we're ending with this. This is what the people want. Like I said, they always <laughs> want us to end reading stats. Okay, I just want to say there's a sentence that you said a minute ago about like comparing the old days to the new days with all the motion and movement and really successful, beautiful offense like the Kings and the odds of that sentence being spoken at any point in the last 15 years have to be almost zero. Yeah, I was going to say there's like the last time they made the playoffs, maybe you could say it, but no, there are not many times, Ben. Um, okay, statistical factoids. I'm ready. Let's do it right now, Ben. There's one player in the league that is averaging 25 points per 75 on plus 13 efficiency. This is part one of my factoid. Do you know which player this is? I, I assume I'm not allowed to look this up, right? <laughs> no, we're gonna, I'm going to test you here. Okay, so here's the thing. I know Jokic is really close to those numbers, but I don't know if he actually hits it. It's Jokic. 
Yeah, okay. So Jokic is averaging 25.3 points per 75, a plus 13.2 relative true shooting percentage. Ben, do you know how many players in history, era-adjusted points per 75, have averaged 25 points per 75 on plus 13 efficiency ever? Okay, so part two of this, I know that Curry led the league in scoring and efficiency in 2016, but he wasn't at plus 13. He was at like plus 11 or 12 or something like that. So you, so we might just be missing the cutoff. And then I know there's some crazy efficient seasons from people like Artis Gilmore, but he doesn't have the volume to get up to 25. So Cody, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to slam the table. I'm going to slam the table. That might've been the worst sound ever since it shook my mic. <laughs> Um, I'm slamming the table here, Cody. I'm going to say zero players in NBA history have ever done this. Ben, you win the prize. No one in history has ever averaged 25 on plus 13. Now, caveat, Curry in 2016, like you said, 33 on plus 12.8, right? So he, he didn't quite hit it, but he's right there. And then Charles Barkley in 88 had a 27 plus 12.7. So those are the only two guys that were there, right? And I... Th- I think those are adjusted. I think Curry's raw was a little lower. Mm. And that scoring rate you're citing is adjusted for yeah, inflation. And that makes this statistical factoid even more interesting because the offenses are so good right now that when you adjust Jokic for inflation, he would actually go down a little bit. He would go down mm. to like tw- 24 or something off the top of my head. Okay. So you're saying that Jokic, this whole thing is just proving that Jokic is, is as much of a fraud as people are saying. Oh, he's he's a total fraud. Yeah, just tw- twenty five points uh, per seventy five possessions, and you know, s- almost seventy percent true shooting, and um, you know, having a, having a one twenty five offensive rating when you're on the court for your team, which is the third best in the entire league. You know, the Nuggets. I have a I have a factoid to counter Ooh. with you because um, I was listening. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention it. I'm not gonna mention it. It was a it was an interesting show. I was listening to a discussion about an award on the low post this week. And I'm not going to mention that award because I don't think it should be talked about for at least two more months. But they were talking about candidates for this award. And I looked something up with Jokic uh, because he wasn't in the top five. Jokic, the Nuggets, Cody, are plus 13 points per 100 when he's on the court. (laughs) And they're minus 15 points per 100 when he's off the court, so so they're one of the best teams in the league when he's on the floor. They're the best offense, basically, in the league when he's on the floor. And they completely fall apart. He has what would be the all-time change in net on-off. It's very likely that that regresses down as the season goes on. But I don't know what more you can do as an offensive machine. And I think some. I think what's happening, Cody is some people are criticizing Jokic for not shooting enough. And it's like he's so good at basketball at this point. I think this is the best offense he's ever played. I think I think we're watching someone right now every night who is a candidate to be the best offensive player anyone has ever seen in the history of the sport. And what's happening is his decision-making and passing are so good that people are checking the box score after the game and they're like, why didn't he? Sh- why didn't he score more himself? Right, 
And there's been some games where he has been a little bit more passive than he has been in the past. And there's some games where he hasn't shot as much and that's yielded criticism. I only think one of those games they actually lost and he was in a lot of foul trouble constantly throughout the night. The other times that's happened, he's just picked teams apart with passing. And it's like, if you play the first half and you're four for four from the field with like 13 assists and your team is up by 30 points at halftime and I and you watch the game and you break down the clips and you're like, oh no, he just makes the perfect decision on every play and as a sidebar, he doesn't miss his own shots. I don't understand why anyone is thinking that this isn't still an all-time great... Like, I just don't get the criticism of, oh, his scoring rate's down a little. Because, yeah, he's got more weapons than he had last year. So passing to them or the decision-making calculus changes. And as a, in addition to that, like, there's a thing where he's also trying to probably bring Jamal Murray and Michael Porter up to speed and get confidence and get rhythm. And it's not a big deal if you don't try to take over every game with scoring. That's that's my rant. That's it. And I think another thing that goes into it is I think he's been he's been passing up more threes more than any other kind of shot. And here's the thing that's fascinating, right? His 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 efficiency has spiked like we've never seen. His rookie year, his average shot distance was seven and a half feet, right? Between twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen and last season, he was past ten feet for average shot distance. Okay, past 10 feet. So his average shot was at least 10 feet away from the basket. This season, it's about six and a half feet. He's completely moved his offensive game towards the basket, closer to the basket. And he's just like, you know what? I'm just going to stop like shooting too much out here because I'm unstoppable when I get in the paint. I force everyone to double team me. And then I'm just like, I don't know, one of the best passers of all time. And I'm just going to pick you apart this way. Cody, I'm looking at our uh, database. We... We share with our subscribers, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Um, we talked about De'Aaron Fox and his cute little 54% mid-range field goal percentage this year. Do you know what uh, Nikola Jokic is shooting from the mid-range? Seven shots per 75. You know what his field goal percentage is from the mid-range? You should say it because I actually just, I'm looking at it right now. It's a 59%. 59%. And then he's he's so weak at the rim. What's he shooting at the rim? 80 <laughs> 80% at the rim. This is this is ridiculous. Uh, if you want to support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We do have daily boards for players and teams that update regularly that have a ton of the stats that you hear us cite throughout these episodes and in videos. They're the stats I look at regularly. We also have a Discord community. We have extra content. We've got a bunch of uh, little quick-hitting videos that we've thrown up at the start of the year. Patreon.com slash ThinkingBasketball. That's the best way to directly support this show. Hope everyone out there had a safe and healthy and fantastic and drama-free Thanksgiving, uh, that you are enjoying the basketball, and of course, wherever you are listening from, that you are having a great day.